Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Good, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Domino's CEO Rich Allison is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the stock of the year so far, and that's GameStop. The meme stock of 2021 issued its fourth quarter report on Wednesday, and it was not pretty. Profits and revenue were lower than expected, and GameStop's management refused to take any questions on its conference call. At one point this week, shares of GameStop had fallen 40%. They rebounded to finish the week down only about 10%. Ron, we've got the underlying business, uh, the management, the stock itself. Where do you want to start? You kind of nailed it, Chris. The volatility in this stock this week is laughable. Shouldn't work this way. <laughs> the stock market is more efficient than this stock would have you believe. Uh, as you said, shares sold off sharply on worse than expected quarterly results, rebounded by the end of the week. If we look at that quarter, and I'm going to try not to mention the word Reddit more than once, and that was the one time. <laughs> so I'm going to do this story without that uh, um, as a factor. Um, let's look at the business. Net sales down 3%. Um, that's on a 12% decrease in their store base and a reduction of about 27% of European store operating days. There are about 1,000 stores out of 5,000 that, that are overseas. Uh, most folks might not realize that. Um, now, this was offset by some strong demand for a new generation of game consoles that were recently introduced. This kind of game console refresh that people um, were looking for um, did, did show some strong demand. But this is the 12th straight quarter of declining sales. The bright spot e-commerce up 175%, represented 34% of net sales for the quarter, uh, which was up significantly from, from previous quarters. Um, you, you saw gross margins take a hit. Lower margin consoles, um, they're, they're, they're not as uh, high priced as uh, the margin in them is not great. They had some higher expenses as well. Now, they were profitable. Adjusted net income of about $90 million compared with about $84 million last year. So, you know, we can talk about GameStop all day long and about how this is potentially a dying business, and it is. But they still, <laughs> but they still are profitable as of now. And they said there's a strong start to 2021 as February comp sales increased 23%. Now we move to kind of this reorg that's going on with the Chewy co-founder and two other folks coming in getting board seats, wanting them to go all digital, become the Amazon of gaming, easier said than done, but a, a fine strategy versus the current one. Um, the company hired three new executives recently, including a new COO, and a new regulatory filing, as if there wasn't enough going on, indicated that eight members of the board are expected to leave the company. Uh, Jason, we were talking about this earlier. I really was surprised they didn't take any calls, uh, any questions <laughs> on the conference call, because, uh, you know, it's fine if you want to go the Berkshire Hathaway strategy of saying, we're issuing our report, we're not having a conference call, therefore, we will not be taking questions. But to have the call to not take questions, it, they had to have known that this call was going to be in the spotlight. 
I, I would imagine. I would imagine too. They figured that if they did open it up for questions, then that would have been hijacked pretty quickly. Like it would have gone in one direction. I think in one direction only. And really, that would have taken that would have taken the narrative out out of their control. So I do understand at least that decision that they made. I, whether I agree with it or not, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm kind of torn. I mean, I, I do actually like calls with no questions <laughs> because <laughs> oftentimes, more often than not, the questions are really kind of useless uh, to me at least. Um, I, I mean, I, it, listen, the business itself. I mean, Ron. Ron said it's a dying business. I mean, I, I don't disagree really. I mean, it feels like there's there's a lot of sort of J.C. Penny <laughs> sort of vibes going on here. I mean, bringing in new executive talent, you know, these fancy titles and growth and innovation and tech, and I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate the fact they're they say they're they're continuing the work to expand their addressable market. They're trying to grow. The company's product catalog beyond just gaming, right? I mean, it's it's gaming, it's computers, monitors, game tables, mobile gaming, gaming TVs. They say that this opportunity ultimately increases their overall market opportunity by five times. Now, I don't know if that's the case. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I am willing to venture a guess that there are other companies already selling that stuff as well. So again, this is a business very much on the defensive, very much on the turnaround. Uh, whether they pull it off or not, it remains to be seen. But I personally would not be uh, putting my chips uh, in the uh, in the category of yes, they will pull it off. <laughs> Two, two quick things to note. Their, their only guidance was that there'll be no guidance. And specifically, they will not be reporting same-store sales in fiscal 2021. Um, things are too hard to predict, and they don't want to get kind of bogged down with that metric. And this is potentially smart. With a market cap of now $14.5 billion, thanks to that social media community, um, they are considering putting uh, selling $100 million worth of stock and f um, firming up the balance sheet a bit, which, which you couldn't fault them for. Shares of Adobe up slightly this week. The software giant got a little bit gianter after first quarter <laughs> profits came in higher than expected. And Adobe's management sounded pretty bullish with their fiscal year guidance, Jason. Yeah, it, it was it was a good quarter, good call. Outlook looks good. I mean, I, I recommended this company back in November of 2019, and I mean, it's been a wonderful performer to date. I, I recommended it based on this idea that in in times of higher valuations, when the market seems like it's a little bit stretched, you really want to focus on on quality companies, right? Not only companies pursuing big market opportunities, but companies with established, reliable business models um, that, that are leaders in the space. And, and, and Adobe, to me, is, is just a, a prime example of one of those types of companies. Uh, it's a digital media company utilizing a subscription model. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Subscription revenue is basically 90% of the business. Gross margins, essentially 90%. Uh, revenue for the quarter, $3.91 billion. It was up 26%. Non-gap earnings per share, $3.14. That was up 38%. Uh, I, I think, to me, with everything they do very well on the, in the digital media side, I do think the document uh, cloud opportunity is, is a, a fascinating one. It's, it's, uh, it's becoming a more important part of the business. That document cloud segment revenue grew to $480 million. It was up 37%. For context there, if you look at DocuSign, uh, their, their total business, that, that revenue in their most recent quarter was $431 million. And, and that grew 57% from a year ago. So, when, when you look at DocuSign's 
assessment of this total market opportunity of around $50 billion. I, I like that both of these companies are pursuing it. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and they're really kind of just getting started. Uh, balance sheet is in tremendous position, uh, around $5 billion in cash and equivalents, down a little bit based on a work front acquisition that they made uh, for $1.5 billion. Uh, they did note that CFO John Murphy will be retiring at the end of the year. Uh, but again, I mean, this is a company that is just right at the forefront of this digital economy that's forming, and so I suspect uh, that there are plenty, plenty of, uh, of of good days to come. What a year for restoration hardware! Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Shares of RH up 10% this week and hitting an all-time high on Friday. And Ron, if guidance from the RH management team is to be believed, the demand for high-end furniture just continues to be strong. Really unbelievably strong. Let me give you some context here. This stock is up 1,200% over the last five years and up 125% from pre COVID levels. Um, so, folks are clearly um, fixing up their homes and, and buying furniture, and management thinks that is going to continue and it's not just a COVID related bump. Uh, the quarter was, was really, really strong. Revenue's up 22%. Demand for their core RH store was 36% in the fourth quarter. Overall demand up 29%. You saw both gross margins and operating margins widen significantly. You see that kind of pricing power of some luxury furniture. Adjusted net income up 57%. Now, return on invested capital, we don't talk about that a lot, but a return on invested capital up 50, was 53% in 2020. That's probably, if I had to say, double what a typical furniture store um, would look like. These are incredible numbers. Uh, for the current quarter that we're in now, demand continues to accelerate. February up 73%. First two weeks of March up 96%. So the goodness continues. The guidance is they expect first quarter revenue to grow at least 50% and project 2021 revenue growth of 15 to 20%. And just one comment on what management said. They said they ended 2020 with just less than $3 billion in net revenue, but they believe the data supports the RH brand can reach $5 to $6 billion in North America and $20 to $25 billion globally. So if they're right, if they have a good handle on this business and the future, of this business, the stock still has room to run if these growth numbers continue, because it's not that cheap for a furniture company at 25 times. But also, I mean, it's not priced like it's a technology company. So this, this could still have room. On last week's show, we told you about a bidding war going on in Silicon Valley. This week, the bidding finally stopped, and a surprising winner was declared. Details next, so don't go anywhere. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Later in the show, we'll get to the stocks on our radar, but if you're looking for even more stock ideas and recommendations, check out our flagship service, Stock Advisor. You get recommendations from Tom and David Gardner, their best buys now, and a lot more. Just go to radarstocks.fool.com. That's radarstocks.fool.com and get 50% off just for being one of the dozens of listeners. Coherent, the laser company that had three other businesses trying to outbid each other to buy it, has picked a winner. Lumentum increased its bid, but Coherent ended up choosing 2-6. You tell me, Jason, Lumentum says their bid was higher. 
Why did Coherent <laughs> go with less money? Well, I mean, Lamentum's bid, in fact, was higher. I mean, math is math, and we can't really argue that. But lest you think that money is everything, sometimes I guess it's not. Um, there, there were also some role players here in Silver Lake Capital and Bain Capital on both sides of that of that equation as well. I'm sure it would have been eye-opening to be in those meetings and on those calls, because I'd imagine uh, th- those folks had something to say uh, about it as well. But it, it, it was very fascinating. I mean, this was a situation where 2.6 and Lamentum were both going to pay $220 per share in cash. Uh, 2.6 had the edge based on share-based uh, component. So then Lamentum came back and actually submitted an offer where it increased the cash to $230 per share, along with that share-based component, which was increased. Uh, and yet, you have Coherent ultimately going with 2.6. It, it seems like this Perhaps it's a culture thing. Uh, perhaps it's it's a feeling where coherence business in photonics and lasers marries up with two sixes a little bit more so than Lumentum. Lumentum being very much uh, you know the leader in that in that VCSEL technology that we talk about in regard to sensors and whatnot. Um, it, it, it's it's hard to say exactly why they would have gone with this, but ultimately they felt like it was a better fit, and so uh, coherent pays the breakup fee to Lumentum. Lumentum walks away. Uh, I. I, I we often criticize acquisitions. I mean, right? We criticize deals, saying it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to sit here and criticize Lamentum for not winning this deal. I think I was kind of indifferent as to whether it actually happened or not, because it was really about getting the technology. Uh, but at the end of the day, Two uh, Six is paying a, king, a king's ransom for a business that you could argue has been in a bit of a state of decline over the last five years. I mean, this is 60 times EV to EBITDA, so not cheap at all. They're going to need to prove this out. And based on the language in the call, it's going to take at least a couple of years for this to even be accretive. So, hey, maybe this is a blessing in disguise for Lamentum shareholders. Either way, I think the company will be just fine. Shares of Darden Restaurants hit an all-time high on Friday. The parent company of Olive Garden had strong results in the third quarter, and their guidance for Q4 looked good too, Ron. Yep, guidance was solid, results better than expected, but they are still quite weak. Let's, let's be realistic. COVID um, had stores, um, obviously restaurants, um, closed for, for part of the quarter, and, and things remain weak. Total sales down 27%. That's due to a same-store sales decrease of 27%, uh, offset by 10 net new restaurants, which helped. But you know, if you break down and look at the segments, weakness across all segments. Olive Garden down 26%, Longhorn Steak down 12 Fine dining, including Capital Grill, my personal favorite, by the way, up down 45%. Still profitable, though. Net earnings from continuing operations, $120 million, $236 million of EBITDA. So, the, the company is still profitable, even at these levels. Um, but things certainly need to improve, and I think they will as the economy opens up. Uh, the board has approved a $500 million share repurchase program. So, let's see if they uh, go into the market and buy stock at $147 or around there, where the stock is today. Um, some, some things I'd like to see is that they're increasing their hourly rate wage for workers. They're starting with $10 per hour, moving to 11 in 2022, then $12 in 2023. Um, they spent quite a bit of money this year on bonuses uh, to workers, um, which I love to see as well. You said Q4 guidance was solid. I completely agree. I like this one for as the company continues to reopen. In fact, I purchased it uh, myself um, a few weeks ago as a result of kind of that reopening investment. Um, and I think this one looks good. 
Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got a note from David in Fort Worth, Texas. He writes, I've been investing for my son since he was two weeks old and plan on educating him to be financially responsible or at least fiscally fluent. What is your biggest don't when it comes to teaching your kids about good money habits and finance in general? What is the biggest mistake you've seen others make in an attempt to help their children? Um, I love this uh, twist on a, a question we get a lot, Jason. Yeah, I, I, th I mean, there are a lot of different ways you could go with this. I think <laughs> this is don't overwhelm them when they're too young, right? They're, they're like little frightened animals. You, you don't <laughs> want to scare them off, right? You want to you want to be gentle. Um, I, I think the biggest mistake is going too far one direction or the other. Either you know, being unable to contain your excitement and wanting to teach them everything and nerding out, or really not being quite open enough about your finances. I mean, it, it is trying to strike that happy medium, um, but but I think going too far one way or the other can often be a mistake that many of us uh, are guilty of. Ron, what do you think? Yeah, I would say um, if, if you've accumulated a nice amount of savings and investments, don't necessarily reveal all of that to them right away at a younger age. You don't want them to mistakenly think um, that, that they've got all this money behind them. You want them to stay hungry, for lack of a, a better word, and realize that they have to continue to work and save. And, you know, for, for a kid, a few thousand dollars seems like a lot, $20,000 seems like a, a lifetime of money. Um, so be a little bit careful about complete transparency there. And then I, I just want to mention, don't forget that once your children start to earn money, not babysitting money, but money where they get a 1099 um, from a summer job, you can open a Roth IRA for those children and put money away up to $6,000 a year or really up to the amount they earned in that given year. And the compounding from age 15 to age 65, uh, your money is going to double probably five or six times over that period of time. It's an incredible way to build wealth. So don't forget about that Roth IRA for children. Good news for people who love Peeps and hate their own taste buds. Pepsi is teaming up with Peeps to create a marshmallow-flavored cola. It will come in a three-pack of seven-and-a-half-ounce cans. But guys, you can't buy it in a store. You have to win them by posting photos on Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag, HangingWithMyPeeps. I, 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 do, I do like the hashtag, Jason, but this sounds frighteningly awful. When I first saw this news, I thought, hmm, not sure I like it. But then I started thinking a little bit more about it. You know what? It sounds like this could have a little cream soda vibe to it. And if that's mm. the case, I mean, I am at least going to keep an open mind. Because, I mean, who doesn't love a good cream soda, right? Ron Gross, Jason Moser, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a conversation with Domino's CEO, Rich Allison. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Born under a bad side. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In July of 2018, Rich Allison took over for Patrick Doyle as the CEO of Domino's. A CEO transition can be tricky, and let's face it, some of them just don't work out. So I asked Rich how he and his former boss worked together to ensure a smooth transfer of power. I had a great working relationship, you know, with Patrick over the seven and a half, uh, you know, years that I reported to him, and you know, the great thing was that being a part of the executive leadership team, 
you know, I had a good view across the entire business, you know, even though my area of focus was specifically outside uh, the U.S. And then once Patrick uh, decided uh, uh, to retire and and uh, I was announced as his successor, we had a, a, a really great you know, opportunity over a period of months to work very closely together such that he could transition knowledge from the other areas of the business that I was acquainted with, but not, you know, deeply uh, knowledgeable about. And, and the way those things kind of work when they work effectively is, you know, by the final date, when, you know, the, the, the departing CEO leaves and the new one steps in, you know, the new one should already basically be doing the job you know, every day. And that's really how Patrick and I, I just applaud him and I'm so thankful to him. He really let me lean in over that period of months such that, you know, as we got into those, you know, final weeks and whatnot, you know, the decisions that we were taking, you know, I was very much involved in, 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 in making those decisions ultimately, obviously with his blessing and oversight. Um, but, but all in all, I, I couldn't have asked for a better process uh, that he helped me work through. I'm guessing there's not a typical week when you're the CEO of a public company the size of Domino's, but I am curious how you spend your time. What are sort of the major areas of the business that you are focused on? Yeah, there's there really isn't a typical week, Chris, and certainly the last year has been a far from typical year. So, you know, I'll try to give you a bit of a sense for it in a in a normal operating environment. Uh, environment, you know, we're we're a franchise business. Um, you know, we've got seventeen thousand plus stores, but ninety eight percent of them are owned by franchisees uh, around the world. So, a big part of my job is getting out there and spending time with our franchisees and in our stores. And so, you know, over the course of a year, I'll I'll take a lot of trips you know, here in the U.S. out to visit uh, our markets, uh, franchise stores, corporate stores, supply chain centers, et cetera. And then I always take, you know, several international trips each year where I'll typically combine a couple of countries on a week, uh, you know, in a week or, or two weeks outside the country. So I really believe that, you know, a, a CEO in the restaurant industry has to spend a lot of time on the ground uh, with the franchisees and in the stores to really know what's going on in the business. So that's a high, a high level of focus uh, for me, most certainly. You know, I, I have responsibilities also overseeing, you know, many other functions inside the business. So I, I spend a good bit of time with my leaders and my teams, you know, there and areas that range, you know, everything from, uh, you know, from, uh, from technology to, to legal, to supply chain, to you name it. And in particular, across those organizational elements, I spend a lot of my time focused on people and you know, making sure that we are developing the leaders of tomorrow, that we've got succession plans in place uh, for folks, that folks are getting the training and development and the, and the opportunities uh, that they need. Uh, you know, then there's another group of stakeholders that I spend a fair amount of time with, which are, uh, as a publicly traded company, investors and analysts are an important stakeholder group uh, that I spend time with. Uh, others would include, you know, folks like yourself, you know, in the media uh, and with our with our PR functions. And then also I spend a little bit of time, you know, on the government relations side of things as well to to, uh, you know, to, to make sure that uh, that folks do know, you know, how important this industry, you know, is for job creation and growth uh, in the in the U.S. So, 
no week is a typical week, but you know, over, over the course of a month or a period of months or a year, uh, I got plenty of work to do across all of those things. One of the ways the landscape has changed since you joined Domino's is the rise of businesses like DoorDash and sure. Uber Eats. And I know that Domino's does not use third-party businesses like that for delivery, but I'm, I'm curious, has the rise of delivery services like that changed the way that you think about competition? Absolutely, uh, it has. You know, in the old in the old world, and, it, and it's not that long ago, you know, we sort of looked at our competitive set as the pizza competition, right? The large, inter, the, the large, you know, global and national players, and then also, you know, the the regionals and the independents. Well, now it's and, you know, we still compete against those uh, companies, but now you can get anything delivered from anywhere, virtually any time of, of day or night. And so we do look at, you know, those uh, third-party aggregators, you know, absolutely as, uh, in many ways, the most important, you know, competitive uh, set uh, that we have today. And so, you know, when we're trying to understand, you know, what's going on with consumer trends, what's happening with technology, you know, how we need to be thinking about, you know, our own investments and, and, and where we focus our energies, we are absolutely looking at, you know, both of those sets, the pizza competition and more broadly, you know, the, uh, the, the, the brands that are enabled by these third-party uh, delivery aggregators. I find that advertising and marketing can be an interesting window into a business because it's unfiltered. It's, you know, it's a business spending their own money saying, this is who we are and, and these are our products and services. This is what you know, we want you to know about us. Um, and I think that uh, Domino's, by and large, has done a very good job of that by essentially playing it straight and, and, and not overcomplicating things. Um, it probably helps that you sell pizza and you're not like a cloud computing business or a you know, software as a service where you have to spend part of your time explaining what you actually do. Um, but I have to say, a couple of years ago, I was I was intrigued by a national ad campaign that Domino's had, uh, and it was about the rewards program, um, giving people rewards for eating pizza, but not for eating Domino's pizza, for eating any pizza. Now, you know, take a photo of the pizza, you get rewards points, and I was really fascinated by that because. Yes, ideally, you're getting more people to download the app and engage in your service, but that's a riskier move to go out and say, hey, we just want you eating pizza. Um, my hunch, and I could be wrong, my hunch is that there were some people at Domino's who took some convincing with that ad strategy. Um, what was that conversation like with you and your team? Yeah, it's it, it was it was a great you know and fun spirited discussion you know Chris because it is it on the surface it sounds a little bit crazy right you know we're in the business of selling pizza to our our customers and we're going to go out there and reward them for for eating somewhere else but as we as we you know as we thought about it there there are a couple of of elements there uh, uh, around that campaign that that made a lot of sense to us you know number one you can only do that if you're the leader in the category, right? Because, you know, when you go out with a message like that, we're promoting the pizza category. And, 
you know, we couldn't do that if we were the, you know, number two or number three or number four player in the space. So, you know, to, we recognize it by build, you know, by trying to build the pizza category, we're going to get the largest benefit out of that ultimately over time. And then second is, you know, what it could do for us around driving customer uh, engagement and the loyalty program that we have, our piece of the pie rewards program, which now has 27 million active members. Active means that they purchased from us at least once in the last six months through that program. That is such a valuable asset uh, for us. You know, the, the data and the knowledge that we have around our customers, knowledge that we never sell to anyone outside, we only use it to better serve those customers over time. To the extent that we can continue to build that, and this campaign was a great way to do that, that creates long-term value for us because it's not just about one transaction, it's about the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one over time as customers you know, continue to concentrate more of their business with us. Let me get to the food for a second here. Um, one of the big trends, as you know, in uh, restaurants and and groceries uh, over the last decade um, is um, is vegan, sort of the rise of vegan options. Um, how does Domino's view that opportunity and or challenge? Sure. So I'll I'll, I'll talk about it maybe through two lenses. One is, you know, there's a, a lot of what you hear about out there, which is you know plant based proteins, you know, in particular, and and a lot of a lot of brands, and to your point, a lot of grocery you know, going out there uh, big on plant-based proteins. We've certainly been looking at that, you know, in in our business. And you know, when we you know when we identify an opportunity that, there that we think makes sense for our brand, then we would go after it. Really, for us, that means it would have to drive incremental profitability for our franchisees at the store level, and we would need to be able to to execute it operationally. You know, such that it, it doesn't bring significant added complexity to our stores. Because a big part of our success is being able to operate very efficiently and get food to people as soon as they want it. Um, but the other thing that's, that's interesting about the, uh, about the pizza business that's maybe a little different from some of the other food categories is, you know, we've got, vet, we've got a wide range of vegetables on the menu already. And in fact, for me personally, you know, over half the time when I order, I order our Pacific veggie pizza. You know, do I love pepperoni and sausage? Absolutely. But I can't eat it as much as I used to, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and maintain the, uh, the health and the weight that I'd like to have over time. As you get older, those things kind of happen. So that's mostly what I eat. You know, if you traveled to India, where we've got 1,300 plus Domino's, you would see that we've got a vegetarian menu and a non-vegetarian menu, and well over half of the pizzas we sell are vegetarian pizzas. So that's how that's how our customers, you know, choose. Uh, you know, our vegetarian customers choose to, and and some who aren't vegetarian, like myself, choose to to you know to eat uh, you know uh, their food from Domino's. But we always have an eye on it. We're always watching what these trends are and how they're evolving over time. 
from time to time, you'll hear in the, just the restaurant industry writ large, um, you know, a company is testing a new concept, a new product um, in a given market with the eye towards rolling it out nationally. Um, I know you have a massive test kitchen at Domino's, but I'm, I'm curious when it comes to testing new things with consumers, how do you, what is the process of deciding what makes the cut and what doesn't? Sure. So we do an extensive amount of product testing uh, with consumers. Um, we don't do it in test markets like some other brands do, because um, at least we found over time that that doesn't always give you the most accurate set of results. We've got a set of testing protocols that give us a much more accurate representation of what consumer demand will ultimately be. And then as we assess demand, you know, at Domino's, it's not just about you know, would that product, you know, achieve a certain mix on the menu? In the restaurant industry, you'll hear a lot, well, that product was successful because we got it to 10% mix. Yeah, that's important, but that's not what's really important to us. What we're looking at is for is incrementality. So we're not only looking at, you know, us understanding do consumers like that product, we want to understand, would they buy that with a new occasion? or a new item added to their order, or would that potentially cannibalize something that we already have on the menu? And so that's a big part of the analysis that we run to really understand would it drive incremental sales and incremental profit for our franchisees at the store level. And then we do that assessment. I was mentioned just a little bit earlier when we were talking about some of the vegetarian options. Would it, would it introduce uh, significant added complexity? to our uh, operations, because that's another key element of, uh, of how we think about uh, new products. We don't do limited time offers like a lot of folks in the restaurant industry do, because we think it infuses a lot of operational complexity. You spend a lot of advertising dollars, and as soon as you get a customer to really love that product, you pull it off the menu. It just doesn't make any sense to us. Yes, that can drive some short-term same-store sales growth, but what we're really focused on are, are introducing product platforms that can build sales and consumer engagement over the long term. So I shouldn't expect you to partner up with McDonald's for a limited time McRib pizza? Unlikely. <laughs> um, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, anyone who lives with other people knows the challenge of ordering pizza and the negotiation around toppings. So you touched on this earlier, but I just just imagine health is not a concern. You're by yourself. You know, your family is elsewhere. It's just you, Rich. You're ordering a pizza. What are you going with for toppings? Yeah, so I will tell you, you know, Chris, I don't have you know, I don't have one always go to, but depending on kind of what I'm what I'm feeling like there are kind of three pizzas that I really uh, are at the top of my list. One is that Pacific veggie that I talked about, which is just a great, and I can do it on a Brooklyn crust, which is our hand tossed dough, but it's stretched thinner. I like more toppings to dough ratio, typically. Um, a second one for me, that's a pizza geek comment, by the way. Um, the second thing I've been ordering a lot lately is our new chicken taco pizza. In fact, that's what I had for dinner last night. And I always add jalapenos to that to give it a little bit more of a zip. And then if I feel really uh, indulgent, then it's going to have to be a, uh, one of our uh, hand-stretched pan pizzas, you know, with sausage, 
and with onions and mushrooms on it, which is just awfully darn good. I just have to gate myself a little bit on how often I do that. I like that you're not locked into just one. You've got sort of a portfolio and you, you choose depending on how you're feeling. Depends on the mood. You got it. And how many miles I ran that morning, that may come into play also. Up next, Jason Moser and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Got to get to the stocks on our radar. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, going with Marvell Technology, ticker MRVL. Marvell is a semiconductor company with a focus on high-performance data infrastructure products. Four key markets being automotive, carrier, data center, and enterprise. Revenue growth for Marvell has been non-existent over the last several years, but I think that's turning a corner with 5G. Management's targeting 10 to 15% annualized growth over the next several years, thanks to key drivers there. And they've invested a lot in preparation for this. It's R&D as a percentage of revenue over the last several years since 2016, actually, has averaged 35% annually, Dan. And then, to top it all off, the InFi acquisition, which will close later this year, will open up additional opportunities and data movement, one for investors to keep an eye on. Dan Boyd, question about Marvell? Yeah, Jason, last week you had Teradyne. You are high on these technology stocks right now, aren't you? I'm high on life, Dan. You know, hey, listen, <laughs> better, better than being high on other things, right? Ron Gross, what are you looking at? I got Vulcan Materials, VMC, the nation's largest producer of construction aggregate. That's crushed stone, sand, and gravel. Also produces asphalt, ready-mixed concrete. I recently took a small position in the stock, so I'd have some incentive to learn more. My overall thesis is that this company would be good to own if any type of meaningful infrastructure plan gets passed. In the fourth quarter, management noted some positive signs like increases in construction employment, strength in residential construction, growth in heavy industrial projects. So, I think this is a good uh, infrastructure plan play. I'm going to learn more and dig in over the next couple of weeks. Dan, question about Vulcan Materials? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Last week, it was Titan International, so wheels. And now, this week, it's stone. Ron, is there some sort of Stone Age basket that you're putting together? I have recently rotated into industrials and some economy reopening stocks, and so you you are very uh, observant. Two very different businesses, Dan. You got one you want to add to your watch list? Chris, I have no idea. I'm just going <laughs> to go with Vulcan Materials because I'm tired of giving Ron losses week after week. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Creer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.